Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Jock Alexander OBE. Jock is the Chief Executive of Navy Wings, a charity headquartered in Somerset, which is committed to preserving and flying historic British naval aircraft. Jock, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure having you, Jock. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the emergence of COVID-19, no less. And leaders of businesses, leaders of organisations, leaders of charities, really having to feel their way through this uncharted territory. Of course, we'll yeah, discuss that. Yeah. yeah, we'll discuss that in more detail, of course, later on in the uh, the conversation. But um if we just look first and foremost at that word leader in isolation for a second, what does that word leader actually mean to you and how does that word resonate? I, To me, after almost 40 years in the military, you, you wouldn't be surprised mm. that it means someone has got to stand up and be counting. It means you're the, you're the man or the buck stops. And, and I think you can divide it into strategic and tactical. So where are we going? What's the aim? What's everyone doing? And then how do we get there? And particularly in this crisis time right now, the tactical leadership, i.e. talking to the people on the ground, making sure they all know, trying to get them through, is vitally important. So get them on the same way, keep morale up. Morale is an interesting thing. It's a sort of military definition. But leadership strikes through the heart of all of that. And it's the person at the end that, 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 that shows the way through. And I think that you mentioned there, of course, um, the importance of morale there. Mental health and well-being has had a real high yes, emphasis on it um, during the course of this time um, as well. And leaders have been, of course, looked to to provide that vital reassurance amid all of the uncertainty. And when there's quite a lack of clarity um, as well over to really expect her from the future, it can be a little bit of a challenge just keeping the communication channels open and providing that, can't it, sometimes? Yeah, certainly can. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, when we think about the fact that, of course, you've got a huge military uh, background um, as well, Jock, I can imagine that there are a lot of skills from that uh, military career that you can essentially transfer into the sort of almost business world, if you will, of running a charitable organization. Yeah, there certainly are, but it's a different world. Oh, of course, <laughs> yes. So it's, it's, uh, there are transferable skills, but, but uh, it's not a sort of hard-nosed military type where everyone, you, you say jump and people say how high. It's explaining why. And I think it's far more important with a team and a charity to get them all inside and knowing why rather than just saying, here's how we're going to do it. So clear communication, absolutely key to all of that. And how has the uh, the charity found it adapting to meet the challenges of COVID-19 during this time? Because I can imagine like operationally it's posed them a great deal of challenges as well as for, of course, the mental health and headspace of those working for it as well. Yeah, it's been a difficult time. I think that's the same for all charities. We we, we are we are very niche in that we operate in the heritage area rather than, than you know, doing things directly for people. Uh, very fast-footed. I think the first few weeks uh, caught everyone unawares from the lockdown. So having to make some fast decisions about furloughing staff, half of my staff are furloughed, uh, the rest of us are on a three-day week. Uh, for me, the immediate thing was to preserve the financial integrity of the charity because all of our fundraising uh, avenues have been taken away for this year, uh, like air shows where we operate airplanes. We don't get any money for that. Uh, as an example, fundraising dinners all stopped. 
and therefore preserve the financial integrity, but also to ensure that we keep ourselves out there in the market, on social media and everything else, so that we can emerge from this as best we can. Uh, therefore, I took the decision to furlough the fundraising event uh, management side of the, of the house and keep the marketing, sales and merchandise, we do online sales in the shop, and social media people on. And, and I think that's worked well. We, we, we've, we're uh, way up in our figures for you know Facebook and Twitter, and I'm right on the edge of my knowledge base now of social media. But we're doing really well in that area. Uh, and our, our online sales are 300% up in this time of last year. So big decisions, uh, not, not easy ones, phoning people up and telling them they've been followed. Uh, and 80% of their pay. Uh, but the right ones, I think, and everyone understands that. I've spoken to them all every month. Uh, personally, before I did it, I spoke to them all on the phone, and they all understand that entirely, because at the end of the day, mm. we've got to preserve this so we can come out all with our jobs in fact and keep the charity going. That's exactly it. And um, would you say that um, you've been inspired by the adaptability and flexibility that um, those around you have really shown during this time? And that includes, of course, how those that have been furloughed have applied themselves amid all the uncertainty as well. Yeah, I, I have. Uh, we're all working from home. We have been since uh, March 23rd uh, on a three-day week, effectively. Uh, I, I now meet a couple of my key guys on it once a fortnight. But essentially, we've adapted. We've made use of all the various ways we can chat and talk online, hold video conferences. Uh, the furlough team, I say I've spoken to them, and, and they, they are still very upbeat. Uh, I do have some worries about a couple of them, you know, who who are obviously struggling to pay the bills because uh, it's not a big pay enemy of charity. Uh, but my aim is to start getting some of them back as soon as I can, probably part-time in July, and then building up from there. Uh, but e- even the people that are furloughed, I've had to tell them not to work. You know, they still want to do something, but clearly they can't do that. They'll be breaking the wall. Uh, so, yeah, I've been very impressed. I'm very impressed with them all. But back to that communications thing, talk to them all. I can imagine it's been sort of quite challenging people management-wise. You say, of course, it's um, there's been the need to have some very, very difficult conversations, and that naturally comes with the territory of something like this, doesn't it? And people management becomes a much more important part of leadership as a whole um, in that sort of context. Well, of course it does, but then again, I can revert to my you know, 40 years in the military. People management mm. is key to that. And, uh, you know, this solo is definitely a crisis. It's a very difficult time for the UK. Even for me, it's like a military operation, but no one's shooting at me. <laughs> So I, I'm not away from home. I, I'm at home. Uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult, but it's it, it's it's doable. And it's fantastic that that experience of the military career is really tied into uh, the approach that you've taken there. And again, job very very inspiring indeed. And um, if we do think about that word, sort of inspire for a moment, we've talked about how the reaction yeah. of those around you has been inspiring. But looking back over your career, are there any individuals that have really stuck out who've been an inspiration or an influence on you as you've developed? Did you say, sorry, leaders inspiring me? Yes, exactly. So anybody maybe you've encountered within your uh, military career, anybody that you've perhaps looked up to, and if nobody as a person really sticks out, maybe experiences that have maybe had an influence. Yeah, well, there's been several, actually. And of course, not only good, but the, but the bad as well. Not, mm. not that many bad ones, but you, you can easily see who, who you would follow and who you wouldn't follow. And experiences, I think, you know, lots of them, depends on where you are in the world. I, I, I've been lucky to serve all over the world including some, some bad places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, I, but, but even there, you can see the goodness in some people and, and others who are not as good. But, but leaders always stand out. They, they always do. And people will follow them. And, and it's all down, at the end of the day, to communication. 
you can say what you want, but if you don't say it properly and they don't believe you, you must they must believe in you as well. And, and you must be adaptable and able to move around the place. But if, if, if your team believe you and, they, and they'll follow you, then that's 90% of the battle then, I think. Shows that leadership has many different faces, doesn't it? And when you have yeah. encounters with um, leaders throughout your life and then go on that journey to becoming one yourself, you can even take not just the good elements of leadership from them, but also the bad as well and think maybe that's something that I wouldn't necessarily do myself, but this has been a learning experience for me. And that's another important part of it too. That's an absolutely important part. Definitely it is. You can see, you know, I think the days have gone of stamping your feet, shouting, screaming type leader, you know, bollocking as we would say in the military. Uh, they, they, they still exist, but you can get the message across far clearer and simpler by a cold, icy dissection. <laughs> Tell someone you're disappointed in them, they've let themselves down, you get far better response than shouting and screaming at them, I think. But the fact to do that in the charity is <laughs> a good team here. And that comes down to people management, Tim, again, doesn't it, uh, for sure? Yeah. And- if you were to actually give some advice to somebody, Jock, based on your own experience, who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role within, say, an organisation, a charity or a business, what sort of advice would you go about giving them? I, I cover a bit of advice, actually. I've been asked this many times from some of the commands that I've had. It, it's not that difficult. The first thing is delegate wisely. Get a good team that you can delegate to and don't interfere with them. Let them get on with it. If you can't delegate, then you've got the wrong person. Get somebody else. And the other thing is quite simple, is be polite. <laughs> you know, there's no need to rant and rave and shout and swear. Be polite to people and they'll respect you and look after you. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed. And people do have to understand that it's like taking people with you. Part of it is being on something of an equal footing and looking out for their interests. It's so much easier to take people with you if you show that humility, that transparency, and that also that accessibility as well. Totally. And also, the last thing I say is to retain a sense of humour and have some fun. There's always, you know, there's always some, some sense of humour to that. I think even when they're black and miserable, uh, a, a, a little joke can cheer everybody up, like a good cup of tea you know, on a dark night when it's raining. Um, and it certainly can help out in um, a time like this for sure as well, Jock, definitely. And um, thinking yeah. of what the future holds now, before we do wrap things up on the, uh, the programme today, um, what do you envision the next year or so holding for yourself and for Navy Wings? And what do you really hope to achieve as we move through, hopefully, the COVID-19 pandemic and emerge from the other side and really begin to look to the long-term future? Yeah, it's a difficult time for us. Uh, we were just transitioning anyway, and we were, we're, the charge is growing. We're taking on historic airplanes from the Royal Navy. Uh, so we, we had a plan to do that. That's obviously been curtailed a little bit with COVID-19. Uh, I think we just got to go out there and get ourselves, get the good message across. We, we would have properly run, well-organized, you know, charity with a mission. Uh, what worries me more, the longer term, is, is it's not the short term. I'm looking at this. I think next year will be okay. It, it's the longer term effect of a big worldwide recession. The economy is, is people who give my charity anyway. And because because we are a niche charity on on the on the side of it, if you like of you know we're, we're historic airplanes rather than people, uh, we we might struggle a bit. I don't think I think it'll be okay. But just the, the general state of the economy is my worry for the next five years, not just next year. And let's hope that that economic recovery um, is one of upward trajectory sooner rather than later, for sure. And um, I think. <laughs> Give me a V-bounce rather than a U-bounce, for sure, yeah. 
For sure. And um, honestly, I, I think it's given how informative this experience um, has been and how much of a, of a pleasure it's been for myself as well, Jock, having you on the air with us. I think it would be great at some point in the next year to perhaps even catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how the uh, the charity yeah, is getting on. Yes, of course. Um, but as well as that, we can also uh, discuss exactly what's changed in the time between and whether those hopes are being borne out as of yet. I think from a listener's point of view, that would be really insightful and really fantastic. Yeah, well, that'd, be, that'd be great. I mean, we, we'd be a good story to tell. We, 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 we keep these old precious parts of our history flying around the country and we take them to show that everyone can see and you know, remind them that their own navy have got a proud tradition of aviation which I was part of Exactly Avian, Aviation industry of course is another that's struggling during these, uh, these oh, times and, it, yeah. and, right. and let's hope again that that can really begin to uh, recover and we don't see too many casualties there either um, Jock yeah. and most importantly uh, before of course so we do uh, wrap things up um, do in the meantime take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet either No thank you very much it's been a real pleasure chatting to you Likewise, that was Jock Alexander, OBE, Chief Executive of Navy Wings. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, going on to hold a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet, and serve as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, Well, the the UK and and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, he has, Starmer has set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.